You're listening to The Policy Matters, a podcast at the intersection of government and business. We are the Strategist Group, and we will be sitting down with policy experts and business leaders to discuss their story, the lessons they've learned, and the future of policy nationwide. Hi, welcome to the podcast. My name is Todd Lamb, and I'm a former senior official at the U.S. Department of Education. And for about the last 15 years, I've been a national education consultant and even sometimes lobbyist, uh, both nationwide with my firm Strategos Group and uh, here at home in Maryland, where I am from today, with my firm Capital Strategies. I thought uh, a lot about this topic today. This is my first podcast, and I, I wanted to make it something that was a very significant issue in American education. And I thought I finally came to the conclusion it was a very easy answer. I wanted to talk about, I think, the most important issue in education we don't talk enough about even, which is school safety. The national conversation relating to school safety amid the rise of school violence continues to be a hot topic for every party involved. Now, the question on everybody's mind is what steps are being taken to assure that the safety of our students is foremost in our minds, of of our minds, and, and those of policymakers. Today, my guest is Mike McCarty, the founder and CEO of Safe Hiring Solutions, and we'll be talking about school safety and how school districts are and should be addressing this important topic. Mike McCarty, you are the founder and CEO of the fastest growing background screening firm in the United States, Safe Hiring Solutions. Thousands of clients such as Liberty Mutual and Kiwanis International have hired you guys. Mike has more than 25 years of violence prevention experience that includes being a violent crime detective with the Metro National Police Department, as well as your role in law enforcement training academy in the state of Indiana. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Now, you routinely appear as a violence prevention expert on CNN and HLN and CBN and Fox. How did you get involved in in this in this area of law? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I spent, as you said, many years in law enforcement, but about a year into my law enforcement career, I was actually already looking to leave law enforcement because it really wasn't doing what I thought law enforcement would do. And that's help people. We were really focused on showing up after something has happened. And so I was uh, looking to go back to law school. At the same time, I was brought into a small task force in Nashville, Tennessee, within the police department. We started looking at some data on how many women and children were being killed in the city of Nashville each year by an intimate partner, a father, a ex-spouse, ex-boyfriend. And what we noticed real quickly is there was a lot of red flags. And we started putting the data together, helped form what later became one of the largest family violence prevention programs in the country that reduced the domestic murder rate in Nashville by more than 50%. And I say all of that because it kind of lays a foundation for where we are with targeted school violence today. There's a lot of implications from what we learned with reducing that type of violence and what we now know we can do with school violence. So that's the topic I want to jump into today with you as an expert in this area. I, you know, I, I started at the U.S. Department of Education in 2001, which was really less than two years after Columbine. And as I look back uh, at that horrible day, uh, I, I think a lot of Americans felt like that incident was an aberration rather than being something of a horrible trend of violence in our schools. 
and unfortunately, it appears to be the latter rather than the former. And uh, my question to you is, as you look back uh, at the history of, of this trend, I, I sure feel like personally, I wish as a, an official at the Department of Education, we had thought of it broad, more broadly. I, I don't know how you do that, but it, it really feels like that was the start of something that has uh, befuddled this country ever since. I think naturally that is how we approach kind of shocking violence is we, we like to contain it in a box. We like to think it's an aberration. You know, one thing I didn't mention why I got into law enforcement as a nine-year-old, we had a brutal murder that happened in our small town about two miles from our house. Four young boys, some of them my age, were lined up and murdered randomly. People Magazine called it one of the 20 most shocking crimes in American history. But the natural reaction within the community then and now, 40 years later, is to believe that it was of some fault of the child. And I think we did the same thing with Columbine. We, we looked at it, we said, hey, there was something really wrong, which there was with uh, the shooters at Columbine. Uh, it was isolated. It couldn't happen in my community. It's an aberration. And so I think that's just a natural reaction we have with violence because we need that kind of in our self-preservation mode to, you know, to think more broadly that, wow, this could have happened here. Um, really, you know, it, it's not natural for us to think that way. You know, as we're taping this show, Mike, I'm cognizant of the fact that this is the two-year anniversary of the Parkland shooting in Florida. Shortly thereafter, there was another shooting here in my home state of Maryland, and I noticed pretty quickly that a number of states immediately passed legislation that I suspect was promulgated by the National Governors Association, and it set aside money for both the physical bolstering of schools, safety, and then also, interestingly enough, the mental side of this equation. How, how should districts in, around the country be balancing those two areas of the problem? Very understandable response. So when we look at, um, if we go back to even Sandy Hook, you know, this shooter shoots his way into the school. So when we see, you know, kind of the failure of the physical structure, we really were more focused on how this shooter got into the building and not really thinking a lot about who is this person, what was in their life, what were some of the red flags or clues prior to these events. And so I think the natural reaction for uh, policymakers, they lean very heavily on law enforcement. And I'll be the first one to tell you, I come from a whole history of law enforcement. My dad was Indiana State Police. My grandfather was police. I've got cousins that were police. My wife was police. My brother's police. I'm police. And so I come from a whole long line of, of law enforcement officers. But unless you are specially trained, like a school resource officer or the Secret Service or like the specialized detective unit that I helped form in Nashville, most law enforcement is still very reactive. And so they are used to responding. Somebody gets shot, we show up. And that mentality oftentimes causes us to focus really hard on those kind of, you know, physical structures. We don't spend a lot of time in law enforcement thinking about prevention. We may talk about it, but we really don't spend a lot of time in that space. And really today, Todd, you know, headline, first thing I read when I got up this morning, you know, two-year anniversary of Parkland is you have 
some parents in Parkland that have now filed a lawsuit against the FBI. And what's the genesis of this uh, lawsuit is the red flags where the FBI, uh, you know, different offices, information had come into those offices, did not get acted upon, according to the lawsuit, was not passed on to the Miami field office. And because of that, there was no connecting of these dots or red flags. And I think if we look at this new Secret Service guide that came out this past November of 2019, this really tells us, looking at 41 targeted violence incidents at school, they make a bold statement and say, these are preventable. And so if I'm a director of security or I'm I'm a superintendent, that's what I want to hear because it actually means we can do something about it. So I think that is where we are today, that we have some hope. We just need to focus more on this mental health and connecting the red flags. Let's get into that for a second, if we could. I was with about 100 superintendents uh, last week at a conference out in Texas uh, talking about this very issue. And one of the things that's striking is that superintendents almost always come through the pipeline uh, from the either the academic side or the assessment side or the curriculum and instruction side. Never do they come from school safety side. Uh, I wonder if I could just wave a magic wand, Mike McCarty, and make you a superintendent at a medium-sized district somewhere in this country, what are a few things that a superintendent could do right away that would make students, teachers, administrations, officials safer in that that make-believe school district? Yeah, you know, first thing I would say is take a deep breath. That's what I would do. Um, and really look at this research. One of the things that we found, and our team who encompasses former law enforcement, Secret Service, FBI, we work with the school, medium-sized school, had an active shooter event within the last few years. We did a whole host of things for this school district. But I can tell you, when we sat down with the superintendent, we handed this superintendent, a school safety climate and assessment survey. And what does that mean? It's not a physical building vulnerability assessment. We weren't checking locks and doors and those kind of uh, functional, you know, building related issues. We were really looking at what is the climate of the school and using a tool that we have very inexpensively, you can really create lists of stakeholders, administrators, principals, assistant principals, front office, public facing, nurses, SROs, counselors. You know, oftentimes we'll have 11 or 12 different uh types of stakeholders. Each one of them can be asked a series of similar or different questions. But what the climate survey allows you to do is to compare those responses and see how do your employees feel about safety and security. And what we found was what the nurses felt was very different from what school safety specialists felt. You know, were the policies actually working? How how did the folks that worked in, you know, kind of public facing positions feel. And so this one really goes to the heart of finding out what is the heartbeat of that school district? How do people feel? Because that's the first place we need to start. Let me ask you a question. You say it's inexpensive. First question any superintendent's going to ask me is how do you price something like this? 
Yeah, I mean, it can be as as little as a few thousand dollars. And there's really kind of two phases to this. And I think you really want to do both. But I, I get it if you're cash strapped and you don't have the, the, the funding to do this, because how it really should work is we do this anonymous survey through a, a tool that we have. And so everybody's providing feedback, knowing that you're not tagging it to me. So I can be brutally honest here. And then we're aggregating it. The next step is to take that information and do either on-site or video conference-based interviews with stakeholders. So that two phase is really where you get the most information because there's a lot we can read through body language or questions or being able to dig a little deeper when we meet face to face with some of the stakeholders. But this is a tool I've seen school districts pay upwards of a half million dollars for a physical vulnerability assessment. And we're talking about a, a tool here that could be anywhere from five to $20,000, depending on the size of the district. What are a couple examples of some districts you guys have worked with recently? Um, I guess in confidentiality, I, I, I haven't asked anybody if I can sure. share that. Um, I, I can tell you that one of them that has done this had an active shooter event within the last two years. We've had small districts as well as rather large districts that have used this tool. All right. So you've done your, your, your initial school climate survey. What next? Through that, it kind of creates a roadmap. And with that roadmap, we can really identify based on some of the questions and some of the responses and looking at some of the policies, we can really start to identify where do you need to focus. And oftentimes where you need to focus are things that you might be able to change very quickly. One of the things that always is going to be recommended if you're not doing it is a behavioral risk assessment. There's several models out there. You got the Virginia model, you got the Maryland model, you got the uh, Salem Kaiser model out West. Some schools are using a blended model, but what this is, this is a free tool. This costs nothing to a school district to implement other than training and understanding. But this is how you would have intervened with crews at Parkland when, you know, you start to see red flags like he lost a parent. He lost a second parent. How do we help this kid? So these threat assessment tools are models. And like the Virginia model, it's a validated model that you use this when you intervene with kids in crisis. You mentioned Maryland. I know that a couple of years ago after the Parkland shooting, they actually created their own office of school safety uh, within the Department of Education. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, I believe Maryland has done a really great job. I think they have uh, implemented, you know, this behavioral risk assessment across the state. And so they really have a standardized approach for schools in Maryland. So you, you mentioned the identifying these flags. How, did, how Who's responsible at the district for, for putting all that information together? Every school, no matter how large or how small, needs a safety or security team. And this team is going to be comprised of different stakeholders because we all look at things very differently. And so we see in larger school districts, you may have a large, you know, kind of administrative team that oversees security or safety teams that work at the school building level. 
because those at the building level know those students the best. And so first phase is really implementing a team. This team comes together. They, uh, we did this in law enforcement where we brought in different stakeholders on a weekly basis, and we would really sit down and table different cases that we were working. Same thing's going to happen here. You might have somebody from mental health, a nurse, uh, you know, an administrator, a school resource officer, experts sitting around a table, but they're all kind of connecting the dots. Too frequently what we see in schools is they all operate in silos. I might see something in a student information system. Another stakeholder might see something in an incident report. Another might see something uh completely differently, but none of us are sharing that information. So in Parkland, maybe we think we see one flag when in reality, we might've had a half dozen or a dozen flags if we were sitting together at a table. I enter a lot of schools uh, around the country. I see vast differences in how I'm able to actually get in. How important is access control in all of this? Critical. I mean, it's the first place we often recommend. And so if you're using a pen and paper at the front desk, that, that's the first thing we're going to recommend is, you know, you've got to manage the flow of people coming in and out of these school buildings. Our largest client has 50,000 volunteers. What kind of risk do you think these volunteers could potentially pose to students as they're coming in and out of these schools? That's a lot of people we don't know. So really looking at your visitor management system, you know, we built and deployed a safe visitor, which is a visitor management system six or seven years ago. It really helps validate screen against sex offender registry, document anybody that's not allowed on school property. So it sends alerts. And so that access control and really managing who's coming in and out of buildings and knowing exactly who they are is absolutely where it has to start. You mentioned, Mike, you know, training uh, earlier in an active shooting training. Uh, I, I read yesterday that uh, a number of organizations around the country are calling on changes in the active shooter training that students are going through. And one of the concerns is that it's freaking kids out. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I get it. I, I've seen some really bizarre approaches to trying to train and make schools safer. And, and let, let me just first say, I've got five kids, one in college. So I still have four in public schools. Um, please feel sorry for me. Um, but with that, um, my kids go to a, a school district, a small school district that had an active shooter event in 1983. So we know it can happen here. It did. But I'm going to tell you, I don't want my kids walking into school every day scared. I don't want them having, you know, going through programs that are going to scare them. And oftentimes, I think that's what we're seeing is people not understanding how you do this. I mean, I've seen uh, training in schools where they're bringing in, you know, security or self-defense experts and they're teaching sixth graders, you know, how you fight an active shooter. No way would I let my children go through something like that. I've seen police come in here in Indiana uh, last year doing active shooter drills using simunition uh, and shot the simunition and actually, you know, shot a couple teachers. So we're not talking about students, but we're talking about teachers now that are gun shy and scared to death and um, hurt. That stuff hurts. And so just some common sense approach to how you prepare and 
do that in a way that is not scaring our children because this is a learning environment. And so we've really got to balance how we're doing this. Mike, this is incredibly interesting and I've, I've already learned a lot. I really appreciate your time today. Um, your company, Safe Hiring Solutions, tell us a little bit about the comprehensive background checks uh, as a solution to the issue of school safety. It's really kind of partners up with what we just talked about with the access control and the visitor management. You know, who's coming into the building and how do we know they're safe? I think one of the mistakes we make is we get so focused on just the active shooter part of, of protecting kids that actually the greatest risk that, you know, children face every day going to school is not an active shooter event. It's sexual exploitation. And, and the data has shown this out. And so really making sure that what we're doing, everything we can to protect those children and not allowing anybody to have access to the children that shouldn't have access. And I say that um, because we're doing hundreds of thousands of background checks and we see one or two sex offenders every week trying to gain access to a child, either through school or a youth program. But those who want to harm children do everything they can to seek access to them. And so these limited, low quality, four or $5 background checks, they may make you feel good, but they're not protecting your kids. So I go into a school district. I do this all the time. And, and typically I have to give an ID, I think almost every time. Tell me how that background check works. As I hand that ID over, they're scanning it. There's a number that's linked to something, and 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 and, and is there real time background check on my ID if if I have a criminal record? Yeah. Um, and so if you think in terms of like our safe visitor, visitor management system, we kind of segment visitors into two categories. You've got kind of the Todd Lambs of the world. You're coming in, maybe you're meeting with superintendents. You're not having any kind of direct or ongoing contact with a student. So we're going to scan your government issue ID. We're going to make sure you haven't been excluded from that school based on any of their policies. And we're going to run that against a national sex offender search because you're a low risk visitor. That's a small percentage of visitor to schools. The larger percentage, think of this uh, school district I mentioned that had 50,000 volunteers. In that scenario, what we want to do is we want to pre-vet them. They do not show up on the property until after they've gone through an application process. They've gone through a comprehensive background check. Then we issue a ID that they would use to scan into the school. But I can tell you one of the, the tools that we released within the last year is a new tool called Arrest Alert. This is a game changer for schools because you look at 50,000 volunteers again or you look at 500 volunteers in a small school district, you do a background check, they could go rob a bank, uh, get arrested for sexual misconduct next week. And unless it's in the news media, you don't know about it. We just released a solution that is real-time monitoring. So once that volunteer, vendor, contractor, employee is approved, then we can give you real-time alerts for as little as like a dollar twenty a year per individual. You can get a real-time notification if they get arrested anywhere in the United States, so you can immediately uh, end access to the school until that's been investigated. Mike, this is a sobering conversation that we're having today, and I thought maybe we would end one of the final questions with uh, some success stories. Give us some some, some some hope for the future. We hear all about the failures, 
We talk about the failures for weeks. We forget about them until the next disaster. What are some success stories from your perspective? I hear a lot of them. I mean, we see them. I mentioned earlier uh, when we have, uh, you know, people that want to harm kids being blocked from gaining access to them. I mean, just within the last month, we've seen a convicted sex offender that was able to lobby a judge, get his conviction expunged as if it never happened. He has tried to gain access to three schools in one community and one youth sport uh, program. And so we've been able to keep him away from children. I hear from my colleagues in uh, other states that anecdotally, when they implement a, a behavioral risk assessment program in the school, that the the safety of that school increases dramatically. They're not seeing the, the other forms of violence and disruptions in the school compared to the schools that have not implemented programs like that. So I think, you know, if we really look at this, there is a lot of hope. The research shows there's a lot of hope. We just really need to really focus in on the prevention side of this, and we'll see some dramatic impact on how we help kids. And that should be the goal, helping kids in crisis. We can't put a program together and say, this is just to prevent active shooter. This is about helping kids in crisis who then could become some of these more violent, uh, targeted violence in our schools. You know, Mike, I'll tell you, I, I remember helping a charter school that was facing closure in Washington, D.C. several years ago. And I asked uh, some of the parents, why do you like this school so much? And they told me point blank, uh, because I feel like my kids are safe here. And it, it struck me that I think any parent can can relate to this is that if your kid is sick or in danger in some way, learning to read and write is the the least of your concerns. Safety is always the first thing. If we can't keep our kids safe, they're never going to learn. Mike, I really appreciate your time today. How can the listeners uh, to this podcast contact you? Give us some links to your social media, your website, whatever way you'd like to be contacted if, if someone would like to talk to you about this topic in more detail. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks, Todd. I appreciate the opportunity to come on your show. SafeHiringSolutions.com has everything you need. Even have our emails and contact information on there. So if somebody wants to take the conversation to a deeper level, we are more than happy to set up a time to do that. Very good, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you listening, if you enjoyed this podcast today, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Anchor. And again, my name is Todd Lamb. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to our guest, Mike McCarty from Safe Hiring Solutions. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Policy Matters. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can learn more about Mike McCarty and the work Safe Hiring Solutions is doing by visiting www.safehiringsolutions.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.